his servants to bring Bathsheba. He sent for uh, Uriah to come home. He sent a message to Joab. And ultimately, he sent for Bathsheba to take her as his wife. But now it is God's turn to do the sending. And he is sending Nathan, his spokesman, the prophet. Obviously, considerable amount of time has passed since David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder and cover-up of Uriah. And the baby has been born, and David has married Bathsheba, and apparently he thinks he has successfully covered up his tracks. David's sin has so damaged his relationship with the Lord, but the Lord will not allow this to continue unresolved. It would appear that Psalm 32 is a reference to this time in David's life when he writes, When I kept silent about my sins, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So during these months of David's life, he was under the discipline of, of the Lord through physical illness of some type. Defiance and rebellion towards God and his word does not bring the results of sins or allurement that it boasts of, does it? David needed a wake-up call so he would be able to see his sins for what they really were. He just kept pressing that guilt down. God had commanded, uh, communicated rather with Nathan, the prophet, a story that he would force David to stop looking at his behavior from his own human perspective. It certainly was not an easy task for Nathan to go to the king. No one had faced the king that we know of about his wrongdoing. To go before the king who has power over life and death, over any of his subjects, certainly was difficult, but God entrusted this assignment to Nathan the prophet and he equipped him for the task. And Nathan would be forever connected with David uh, in scripture. So Nathan rebukes David as you did your lesson. Uh, you read the story that Nathan would tell and it was meant to shatter all the defenses or any means that David had of making excuses. In the story Nathan tells, we have Uriah representing the poor man and David the rich one. One man had many flocks, the other just had one little lamb that his family cherished like a pet. David was the man with many wives and many concubines, and Uriah was the man who was with faithful to one woman only, his wife Bathsheba. In the story, the rich man had lots of flocks. And he used them for food source. But the poor man didn't use food for his animals as food source because he only had one little precious sheep lamb that had become a pet. So Uriah apparently deeply loved and cherished his wife. I never thought that much about it until I was working on this Uriah's perspective. He loved, he cherished his wife. This was a wonderful marriage, David destroyed. Uriah loved her deeply, cherished her. For David, who had so many available wives, Bathsheba was the only one uh, that, the only woman that he used to satisfy that fleshly desire when he had a host of other. 
and bury it like David did. We often are guilty of being the loudest critics of other people and their behavior. They're just astonished people could be so wicked, and yet their own hearts are really innocent. <clears throat> David believes in it is his duty to pass judgment on this rich man, and his declaration is he should die. <clears throat> but I'm to know unto David, <clears throat> excuse me, is that David has just passed judgment on himself. Death was the proper judgment for one guilty of adultery, I mean adultery and murder, according to the law of Moses. Then David goes on to give the correct judgment for stealing a lamb, according to Exodus 22.1, fourfold restitution was to be made. It's, it appears that David thought before the man is put to death, he first needs to restore sheep to this poor man. Ironically, it would be four of David's sons who would die very tragic deaths. Bathsheba's first little infant would die, followed by Amnon, brutally murdered by Absalom, who would die by the hand of Joah and Adonite. In David's own words of condemnation, another distressing fact of this evil done was the truth that the rich man had no compassion. He had shown no compassion to his amazing, faithful, top warrior, Uriah. His sin with Bathsheba brought no remorse for the fact that he had just brought ruin on another man's marriage. Sending Uriah back to Joab with the death warrant in his hand certainly failed to show compassion to Uriah. The truth is, David's sin was far worse than the rich man in the story because the rich man in the story, he stole the poor man's pet, but he didn't kill the man too. As David is filled with such rage for the actions of this man in the story, Nathan says to David, in a moment of silence, you are the man. Can you imagine that moment when Nathan's, Nathan's words finally penetrated Hardened, sin hardened, cold heart. You, it's you, David. And then Nathan delivers a message to David from God. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more blessings like these. The Lord now is clearly speaking through Nathan the prophet as he confronts David openly about the sin. Nathan will pronounce the Lord's judgment, which is far uh, less harsh than the rash judgment that David had. The Lord had blessed David beyond any human imagination, promising that his throne would go on forever and forever, and that a redeemer for all mankind would come through David's family line. And the Lord is saying he would have given him even more if David had just passed. What a great reminder to us that God desires that his children ask him for what they need, and we can ask for what we desire as well and want. And just like an earthly parent delights to be
to provide for his child, so our Heavenly Father wants to uh, wants us to look to Him for each of our needs and desires and let Him determine whether desire is okay or not. Then in verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in His sight? I don't think we often think of our sin as despising the word of the Lord. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. What a powerful rebuke from the Lord today. But this is also a powerful rebuke to you and me as well, because when we disobey God's commands, we are showing contempt, and we are despising his word. And it's contempt ultimately for the Lord. We despise God when we refuse to obey what he tells us to do. It's interesting that God says to David, uh, says David is the one guilty of having struck down Uriah with the sword. David had rationalized it was the enemy, you know, the Ammonites who killed Uriah. But God said, no, David, you're responsible. David's sword may have been clean of any of the blood of Uriah's body, but all of Uriah's blood really was on David's head. And the result of David's sin would be this kind of judgment to be sent to his family by God. What was ahead for David as king would be marked by tragedy and betrayal and violence also coming from within his own household. And just as David had betrayed the sanctity of Uriah's marriage, one day, son of David would betray his father uh, and his marriage bed in the light of day for all to see and know. The prophet said, The sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me. I will raise up evil against you from your own household, Someone else will lie with David's wives in broad daylight. And he said, Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. Familiar principle of scripture is we reap what we sow. We sow. What we sow. Yes, that's the right way. And be sure your <laughs> sins will find you out on how to make a culture. <laughs> Oh, how foolish and stupid we are when we think we can get by with something that we've done in secret or we've only done in our mind. But God sees all. Those things that we do in secret will one day be brought to light. And this judgment by God to David is twofold. David's own family would bring evil and within the family, and David also would have his wives taken by another. And really, the rest of our study in 2 Samuel, as ugly as some of the stuff is going to be, especially next week, is the fulfillment of this judgment that God has just issued. As we study the rest of the book, we'll find that the awful rape of Tamar by her half-brother, the murder of that evil man by Tamar's full brother, the rebellion of Absalom trying to usurp the of his dad, win the hearts of the people, take his father's concubines and wives for his own. We see how God's uh, punishment took the crime. David's 
David comes to his spiritual senses, and he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Wow, what a mercy. What grace. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan went to his house, and the baby got sick. This man, after God's own heart, finally comes to his senses. He has sinned so greatly, yet when he's confronted, you know what? He didn't make excuses, as that great rewritten Psalm 51 in your handout. Or try to justify the actions, or blame, you know, the servants, or blame Joab. You should have said, no, I won't do that, or any of that. He took responsibility, and he confessed his sins openly. He declared he was guilty. Psalm 51 is a record of all of David's prayer of repentance. And it just shows us that true repentance isn't about remorse. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I made people have a bad whatever. It's truly sorrow over your sin and offending a holy God. How amazing that David is told that the Lord has taken away his sin. And he won't have the death that he really deserved at that moment. And this really is the most important gospel message. We're all breakers of all of God's law. We've all been murderers and adulterers in our hearts and lives. A host of endless other sins. Yet God, in His grace and mercy, will forgive those who repent, because Jesus Christ took the penalty and the payment for each of our sins. And those who come to him by faith, repenting of their sins, are forgiven. God's justice and satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. David looked forward to that sacrifice that would pay for this permanently, and we look back. Such wonderful news indeed, that this is a merciful God that we serve. And yet, David's eternal relationship with God was right and returned to fellowship, but that did not exempt him from suffering consequences. Certainly God forgives all sin to those who repent, but he does not automatically remove every consequence. Sometimes he kindly softens that and makes it not as intense. Other times he just says, I'm going to give you the grace to endure what you put yourself into God has put into effect, as I said, sowing and reaping as his principle. And David would experience heartache for his sinful choices for the rest of his days on earth. God made it clear that David's sin displayed contempt for the Lord himself and his word. His sins would therefore encourage the enemies of God to show similar contempt for the things of the Lord. We see over and over again that sin always affects more than the person committing the sin. The innocent are involved, and it gives people an opportunity to blaspheme God and mock his name when they see people who profess to know him and love him or say this about his character act totally contrary. God cannot ignore 
Davidson. So <clears throat> unbelievers uh, will not think so little of the holiness of God. And so David is told that the child born to him, Bathsheba, will die. So an innocent will suffer again because of the guilt of another. And so this is when the baby becomes ill. And David goes immediately into praying and fasting. I mean, he's already experienced so much of God's mercy and grace. Maybe it'll be a little more. And so he's on the ground praying, pleading, fasting all night, all day, seven days. <clears throat> he would not get up from the ground. His servants were concerned. You got to get up. You got to eat something. You got to drink something. He ate and drank nothing for seven days as he laid there praying and fasting. And he remained in this grieving state for these seven days, pleading with the Lord to perhaps change this judgment. And then in verse 18, it happened the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was alive, he spoke to him. We spoke to him, and he didn't listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he may do harm to himself? So these servants misunderstood David's tears and his fasting over the sick little baby boy. They assumed he was grieving, and in reality, he was interceding for the child's life. And when the child finally died, David knew the Lord answered his prayer. No. No, it stands. And there was no further need to intercede in prayer for the child's David sensed that the servants were whispering about what to do in light of the child having died, and so he just pointedly asked, is the child dead? And they answered yes. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he came to his own house. When he requested, they set food before him. I'm reminded here of Job and a similar reaction. When news came of ten adult children, all killed. And Job fell down, and he worshipped, and he said, The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name. It is in times like this that many people are very angry with God, especially the death of a child. However, David recognized that God had been merciful and God is right and God can do whatever it is he seems to think is the right thing. <clears throat> Even in the midst of his pain and heartache, he worshiped the Lord. In acceptance, there is peace. And again, he shows us what a man after God's own heart is like. He had been out of fellowship with the Lord for so long, and he would not let unrepentant of sin rule in his heart again. We learn from David that even a broken heart, devastated, crushed, can still be a heart that can worship God for who he is and all of his attributes. Had David never experienced this painful consequence and judgment, there would be an endless amount of people who would not have benefited from this incident. Because we have verse 21.
So we see that David believed he would meet his son one day in heaven. He fully expected to see this baby again after his own death. And the Lord extends grace to infants too young to reject God. And this doesn't mean babies are born morally good or neutral. They're not. Everyone born into this world is a sinner. But as you search through the pages of Scripture, you can't, you see often that the Lord, because of his mercy, does not condemn to hell infants too young, young to understand what they are doing. And so many places in Scripture makes a distinction with children uh, who don't know their right hand from their left. Passages like Ecclesiastes 6, Job 3, 1 Kings 14, Matthew 18, to just name a few, are a few places that God speaks on this subject with children, infants. <clears throat> There's a wonderful little book by John MacArthur called Safe in the Arms of God that really develops the subject more fully. And I know that there are those who don't believe that this verse teaches any such thing. They just believe that David would die like his infant died. But uh, I think there's enough in Scripture to say otherwise. I can't help but think that those who feel strongly this way have not sat much. I know I have six grandkids. I can't wait to meet. And I haven't. Never get to know here. I didn't quite go on with this, but anyways, it has a very special thing when you think God included this whole ordeal to comfort people. So that brings us to the birth of announcement of Solomon. Verse 24, that David comforted Bathsheba by being intimate with her, and she gave birth to his son. And his name was Solomon, which is the derivative of peace and Jerusalem and Solomon, all connected. And the Lord loved Solomon. <clears throat> this verse introduces us to the next king of Israel. Saul and David have been anointed kings as young men. In manhood, but Solomon was marked out right from his birth. David already <clears throat> had several sons, but this one was singled out by the prophet Nathan, just like Saul and David have been singled out. <clears throat> the thoughts um, of the Lord loving him has the idea of the Lord choosing him. Why God chose this particular son with this particular marriage? is surprising. <clears throat> but Nathan declares that Solomon should be named Jedediah, which means beloved by the Lord. He likely grew up being called Jedediah and was known as Solomon when he became king. <clears throat> this baby boy was God's choice for the throne after David's death, and, and this brought healing really in the marriage of David and Bathsheba. The improper use of sex had brought devastation, and the proper use had brought a gift of restoration and healing in their marriage. So, in First Chronicles uh, 22.9, we read that the Lord said, with more clarification, Behold, a son shall be 
Israel in his days. So the prophet Nathan played this key role at the, at the lives of David and Solomon. You know, he was the man confronting David and the man bringing comfort here at this end of it. The chapter closes out with more war. And uh, we see the account of Israel finally capturing that city of Rabbah that they had under siege for some time. And once Joab was able to get the water supply system, uh, you know, the city was ready to fall. So David was invited by his commander-in-chief of his military to come and be a part of the final assault and victory. Now there are a variety of thoughts about verse 31 regarding the use of saws, axes, kilns, iron instruments, and so on. Um, it appears the use of the words is speaking of using prisoners of war as laborers in building for Israel by the use of their axes and all those other things, forcing their enemy, uh, forced by their enemy to be in slave labor. Uh, I just can't imagine him sawing everybody in two and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, you know, I read what I read, and it certainly can be interpreted that way, the way the construction of the Hebrew is. So David retrieved the heavy crown of the previous king. That was worth a great deal of money. 75-pound golden crown. Boy, what kind of a neck could hold on? I don't know. I remind you, it was the foolish actions, though, that kings, when the king died and the son became king, and David sent comforters, who it was his stupidity, who put the people in all this jeopardy. Again, you have the stupidity and sinful actions of one person and the ripple effect of all the people in their lives affected. By one man, decisions to sin. So, by way of application, first of all, God's law of reaping and sowing continues as long as we live on this earth. Thankfully, our fellowship and our permanent eternal home awaits us, our inheritance awaits us, and we don't impact that in the sense uh, of what we're sowing here on earth and reaping, thankfully. In heaven, we will still be right in, in his throne room and able to worship him. Though we may not have as many crowns, that's not what I'm thinking of. The law of reaping and sowing, as long as we're on this earth, that's just a principle and a reality. Secondly, be alert to the dangers in your own life to rationalize the way you're sin. I've said this times in our studies of this book, but we do the same thing. We, we suppress guilt, uh, we twist it to make it look more palatable, and we go on and think it's okay. Thirdly, if you are truly a child of God, then realize he will discipline you when you go astray and you don't repent. He's not going to let you get by. Just as no earthly parent should let their child get by and defiance. They may do that as an earthly parent failing 
forgives those who repent. As I said, he doesn't always remove the natural consequences that are a result of our sinful actions, but sometimes he softens it, sometimes he removes it, and sometimes he just says, I will enable you to deal with it. Six, when you worship the Lord in your heart, even if he does not answer your prayers the way you desire, will you still trust him? And the answer is no. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are far higher and superior. He has a much greater plan going on than we have <clears throat> Seven, take to heart that the Lord does bring comfort and healing to hurting hearts that are right. He will give you the bond and the healing that you need to make it. He is the God of all Thank you.